Good day, everyone. It is Office Hours with me and Blaine Bartlett, BlaineBartlett.com, my mentor and my spiritual guide. What's going on, Blaine Bartlett? <laughs> Just kind of opening my eyes this morning to a beautiful world and looking forward to the conversations we're about to have. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, also looking forward to seeing you next week for the filming of season five, the second season half five. of season five of Office Hours at the Wynn. Hopefully people swing by to say hi to Blaine and myself. But it's a good day when you have Justin Vandehey in the house, the co-founder of Disco, uh, based in San Francisco. So he's up early, thebridgeround.com. Welcome to Office Hours, Justin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me in. I appreciate it. You bet. Oh, no. We uh, you know, <clears throat> have Blaine and I have been working uh, with SaaS solutions before they were called SaaS solutions. And uh, you're raising an investment fund focused on early stage SaaS um, at a very young age, at an early stage comparatively to Blaine and I as well. Uh, the market has changed. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit more competitive in the sense that uh, you don't need a pulse in order to raise money. You actually have to have a business plan and uh, be able to articulate quantitative value in what you plan to do with a aggressive team. What are some of the differentiators that you're utilizing in raising uh, money today compared to what you probably have seen in the last three to five years? Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's different. You know, I mean, we when we raised for Disco, uh, it was 2015, and we raised a three million dollar seed round from some really exceptional folks. Uh, General Catalyst. So uh, Phil Libin was there, founder of Evernote, Mark Benioff, uh, CEO of Salesforce. We had Slack. SAP is an investor. Um, and I had a pulse and I, we were still bad at it. I don't know. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, you know, but it, it was a lot of rejection. Uh, it was 120 <clears throat> meetings, I think. And we had one one person that was willing to take a shot at the time. Um, and I think, you know, it was still, it started with a great pro, great promise behind a, a solid business concept and a vision of where you wanted to see the world going. Um, I think now, you know, and, and talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, the bar is definitely a lot higher as far as earlier traction. I mean, you have to, it feels like, have at least had a shot on goal uh, with some battles, tested scars, or, you know, had an exit. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, the, that uh, the progression of what you need to hit at the seed stage feels like it's the bar is definitely risen up um in light of what's going on but also i feel like if you have ai anywhere attached to your uh your email syntax it feels like it's a little easier but um yeah it's it's definitely different different time in the game for sure you know i i was curious that very early age uh, early stage process and uh and i've been around a whole bunch of folks that have you know gone into seed round funding and you know the, the pitch decks, you know, I've worked with them and putting pitch decks together and whatnot. Um, the idea of pitching and then you get, you know, and just, you know, take Mark as an example, you know, Benio, what do you think? And you had, you know, 20 pitches, that one that said, yeah, hey, we'll give you a flyer. What was the difference with that one? If you can just kind of extrapolate, you know, with the, with the advantage of hindsight here. And I'm asking this question from the perspective of, in my experience, a lot of you know, pitches are organized around what is it that we're, you know, what's the business, but we're not really paying attention to what do they, the investor, really want to hear? What are they listening for? Yeah. 
And, yeah. and not, not the ROI on it, because the ROI, everybody's pitching ROI. But what, what are they really listening for? What did you what do you think the difference was there that you finally cracked the code on that? I think it's yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a lot around the the top tier investors, I think the the upper echelon, the 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 pre the the, the great ones want to see a vision for how the world is going to be different with this offering. I remember I had a, a conversation with uh, Mamoon Hamid, who's he's at, I believe he's at Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins now, oh, yeah. but he was at Social Capital at the time. And we <clears throat> went in with a really good product. Um, he's like, this is a great product, you know, but where, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? You know, like, do you want to disrupt? Are you rethinking human capital management? Do you want to disrupt workday? So the vision piece, I think, really becomes compelling because not only do they want to see, you know, the total addressable market, the the thing that you want to chase, the big thing that you want to go after. Um, but you know, I think that's that's the key. It's like, what is the what is the world that you want your customers to be living in next? And we just didn't have that in the beginning. We had a really good product with some good solid early traction, but we didn't have a very strong perspective on the category that we wanted to disrupt and where we wanted to take it. And he he literally, I think, helped us kind of write that story. <laughs> he gave us a lot of really good feedback. And I think that's the other great insight that we took away is, you know, oftentimes you get rejection and you get we got a lot of rejection, um, but we were able to take a lot of the feedback that we got from some pretty amazing folks to mold that and ultimately iterate into a story that really landed with more and more people. And um, yeah, it was, it was a painful, but pretty awesome process to, to go through for sure. Yeah. And comparatively again, Justin, you're much younger than uh, Blaine and I, and one of the things that excited me about having you on is that at a very young age, you understand paying it forward. You, the dummy tax, uh, which Blaine and I both have also paid. Uh, but your fund itself is a form of giving back and paying forward, but also your podcast. You're sharing your experience and building, uh, you know, the journey of building a generational company and, you know, changing the world for the better, uh, you know, within the context of the podcast, which by the way, Blaine and I would love to stop with you and give you even more exposure to the bridge. Uh, what have you learned through the process of helping other people learn? Yeah, you know, the podcast is interesting because I I started it more as it started from a place of passion and more therapeutic. Because at the end of the journey <laughs> with Disco, when we sold it, uh, cult, we sold the company to Culture Amp in 2020. Uh, it was in culture amps. Great. It's been a good, it's been a good marriage. Um, but when you go from the seat of running your own thing and now it not being your baby anymore, there's like a sense of loss there. And it was really hard to deal with that. And so it was used as a channel to sort of communicate and articulate the things that I was feeling as we were giving this transition and this thing over. And the initial idea was I wanted to have people on that were a part of the journey to talk about the early stage without me just talking about myself and so i would pull in different people that were part of that journey to you know sort of share it and then the more i got in i'm like man there's an opportunity here because i think with a lot of stuff and again the podcast i'm not this is i'm not joe rogan this isn't you know we're not like we're not world beaters at this point but it's like there needs to be this sort of more authentic view of what it really takes in the early stage and mm -hmm. what it's really like because i think we see a lot in the media about oh you know we raised this valuation and that's the stuff that's clickbaity and easy 
but there's not like true authentic stories around what it takes to build something of value and meaning. And the folks that I have on, I really want to be able to kind of articulate the things that they experienced in the early, early stages. And so selfishly, it was therapeutic for me. It's been an awesome platform to meet some, some incredible folks. Um, and I'm hoping that the stories that, you know, they bring to the table can help the next, uh, next wave of entrepreneurs for sure in that early stage. Yeah, I use all my podcasts for the MBA in the day. So I bring geniuses like Blaine Bartlett in and I just keep asking questions. And, uh, you know, why do I, why do I got to go back to Stanford when I can get all the guys to go on and teach me <laughs> and then share with everyone else? But uh, Blaine, you want to finish up? Yeah, just uh, this idea <clears throat> of uh, disrupting a sector. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested here in your response to this. Yeah, from my perspective, the purpose of business is not to develop a great product or to make money. The purpose of business is to actually enhance the possibility of thriving on the planet for anybody that comes in contact with my service or my product. You know, that, that notion of the purpose of my business is to enhance thrivability, which is the difference that only you, know, you can make you know, in a certain way. How, uh, if that's in fact what you did, or you know, you're kind of backing up here again, looking at it, how did you articulate that when, uh, when somebody actually, you know, you know, when Mark said yes, as an example, uh, you have that notion of you're, yeah, you're, here's the difference that you're making that is something that we can, I know it's a good product, but here's the difference that I see you're making, and I want to fund that difference making. Yeah, Mark's an interesting one, and I know yeah. I keep this story short, but basically. 2014, we had a really simple concept and I, I sort of just bull rushed him at Dreamforce. I saw him walking through and uh, snuck through security entourage to pitch him and without being tased, which was, I thought I was going to be arrested in the middle of San Francisco. Uh, he saw enough promise in the idea of this concept of what feedback at work could look like. You know, he saw, he saw like, oh, there's something interesting here. So you know, it took a long time to finally paint the full picture and vision for him. But um, I think, you know, it, it it was, like I said earlier, kind of the best really, there's an initial signal where it's like, um, we, it, I guess we kind of saw it in two waves too. We, you know, we weren't expecting a global pandemic either, where <laughs> remote work was going to be a big theme. So yeah. I, I think it also really depends on the context by you know, which and when you pitch something like the timing is really big. And I think when mm -hmm. disco really took off, it was like at the height of the pandemic when mm -hmm. people needed to figure out ways to build culture at work and use these tools to to connect and bring people together. And so I guess what I'll say is like, it's not just the vision that you paint, but like the timing and the relevance of it is obviously really, really key as well. We were living in a world where we we had, a you know, an aspirin versus a vitamin. And so this was uh, that was that was a big part of it, too. So. Yeah. I like that. An aspirin rest is not, not a vitamin. David? Well, I, I'm so old, Justin, uh, working with Mark on the opposite side when he was raising money in 1999 in Sand Hill Road with Kwame and those guys at Sequoia, uh, looking at Mark bull rushing people, trying to beat yeah. out a company called Upshot, uh, which was the other <laughs> SF at the time, before you were probably born. But more importantly, Justin, uh, please come back. Uh, We'll reach out. Love to get on that podcast swap with you. I know Blaine has a podcast we want you on as well. Uh, anything we can do for you. Everyone check out thebridgeround.com. Uh, raising an investment fund today isn't easy. So let's create that community of people. I will tell you when it comes to money, 
to thrive is a critical component. You know, we need a community of people that are buying from us and selling for us. Uh, and that will create that thriving economy, a thriving community. And uh, we need more young leaders like Justin. Congratulations on your success and more importantly, on your future success. We'll see you soon, Justin. Thanks, guys. And appreciate you having on. And a lot I could learn from you all as well. So appreciate the time. Great. We'll get connected yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks, Thank guys. <clears throat> and I got a young guy waking up early. You got to figure that. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I thought, I thought <laughs> this, next young, this next young guy coming on, I thought he woke up early for us, but he's in Pasadena, Maryland, not Pasadena, California. Uh, <laughs> and Drew, Drew Hawkins is gracing us uh, as well today and uh, talking about a critical issue that I've been uh, working with with Liebenberg mm -hmm. uh, since the early 2000s um, in a variety of different ways. Uh, mental health not only is a critical issue with our vets, uh, but it's also a critical issue with our athletes as well. And our friend Drew has a new offering. Welcome to Office Hours, Drew. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having us, having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, coming from the financial services arena, uh, it's interesting because it's one of the first areas that we can see as a key indicator to someone's mental health. And understanding their behavior uh, is reflected or amplified by their financial health. Um, and you probably have seen that better over the last 30 years um, than most people. What has moved you into this area, uh, especially with athletes of, you know, understanding uh, the impact of finance on mental health? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I've always, been bothered by the consistency around the headlines and you know they just haven't changed going back to the 1980s with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and challenges that he had with you know his finances and you know when I was when I was with Morgan Stanley I had an opportunity to start and run their global sports and entertainment division we did work in the area and now we've got an opportunity to dig in a lot deeper just because of the fact that the headline still has not changed. You know, these players are still dealing with the challenges that they dealt with years ago. And fortunately, when you look at the system, the system has been fundamentally flawed for quite some time as it relates to the level of education and focus and commitment that's being provided to these individuals by the system. And so until that fundamentally changes, you know, we're not going to see the types of results that we hope to see. And so, you know, we have an opportunity now to really focus on taking a very complicated and intimidating topic and breaking it down and putting it into bite-sized pieces so that these individuals will have an opportunity to understand it, to embrace it, you know, and also challenging them and letting them know that you're not just a pro basketball player or football player or entertainer, but you also now are a CEO of a major corporation, like it or not, and thinking about all the things that need to go with having an opportunity to run that type of business and entity. You know, I'm most of these athletes that you, you know, take on, at least initially, you take them on when they're relatively young, you know, very early 20s, uh, for the most part. Um, and the focus is on both the financial, but also the business. They are the CEO now of their own uh, of their own brand. Um, but I'm interested here in a lifestyle uh, conversation. 
because uh, out of, you know the, the business thing can be learned the financial thing can be learned because there's I mean basically you know there's you know, the, the blocking and tackling in each of those areas is pretty well defined mm-hmm. but the lifestyle choices that uh, these uh, young men and women make how and I've got a pretty good hunch that they're fairly headstrong mm-hmm. <laughs> for the most part extremely you know so so Blaine to that point and to the point that David you know brought in earlier when you talked about the mental side of things, a lot of this lifestyle comes from their upbringing. Right. And, you know, we've got to be able to address why people do what they do and the reasons and rationale behind that before we get into, okay, here's how you invest money. Here's how you get your budget set up. Here's how you select your advisory team. And so being able to hit on those issues and really challenging them as it relates to, you know, some of the things that they learn with their upbringing, either not having things, being extremely frugal, or now feeling like they've got, you know, commitments that they have to make to other people that are around them um, because they provided some level of support with them throughout the process. Um, The other thing is thinking about things from a long-term perspective. You know, everybody wants to talk about, you know, what my legacy is going to be like in generational wealth. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these individuals are not able to maintain what they have to support their own lifestyles and their own families after they leave out, let alone being able to pass it on to other folks that they would like to share that with. Yeah. You know, Drew, I've been in this volume a long time and worked especially with the NFL, the NFLPA, with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, with all the NFL folks, Lee Steinberg, the legends. Uh, some of which who have had mental health and financial uh, difficulties and, uh, you know, recent working with Marshall Falk, for example, on financial literacy. One of the things that, you know, I've seen through three decades, it, it reminds me of the, the town car offering from the NFL. The NFL, when there was a, a lot of DUIs previous to Uber, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they are free town cars. And, I was adamant about this was the most ridiculous solution to a problem I've ever seen. And it seemed to be a mindset that they utilize for financial, which is, hey, you know, here's the service, um, but there's no inertia behind, hey, let's make a plan. So in other words, unless an athlete before they go out makes a plan, uh, get a town car for for free, which is probably not that big of a deal for them as well. Unless you can teach them to make a plan, then when they're drinking out with friends and, and having mm-hmm. a great time at two in the morning, there's no way that just because it's free, they're calling an NFLPA town car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I see the same philosophy behind financial planning uh, and mental health. It's how do we get these athletes to understand the importance of making a plan. I know we work with Cam Newton and when he got his uh, bonus, he said, Mr. Melter, you have any financial advice? I said, yeah, take half of it and put it into an IUL or an annuity. And when you blow through the first half of your guarantee, you'll thank me that you have a legacy that's paying you for the rest of your life in a tax, at least a tax advantageous manner. But how can we get people to understand? I know you have Ed Ucor and their mission uh, I assume part of that education is how important it is just to get a plan. 
It is, you know, and, and you hit it right on the head. The train leaves the station very quickly for a lot of these individuals. And so when you think about it, you know, and let's let's talk about the NBA because they're now coming in much sooner. You know, the family is in line. Their hands are out. They want a level of support. You know, the players, unfortunately, a lot of them are not involved with the selection process as it relates to the team and the people that are going to be around them and actually sitting down and having a conversation to understand what a budget is and how are we going to look to put money away. And, you know, let's face it, these individuals are going to want to provide some level of help and support for family members. But there's a way to do that if, in fact, they are going to go through and allow that to happen. And, you know, you can look at situations like Antoine Walker. You can look at situations like Jermaine Jones, where you're thrust into it. You know, a lot of times you feel like you're obligated to help support individuals based on where someone was in their family. And you wake up a year later, two years later, four years later. And these guys, you know, are in the red because, you know, the mentality is the money's going to consistently be there. It's not going to stop. My career is going to go on forever. You know, I'm going to blow through this money now and I'm going to have an opportunity to change things around when I get that second contract. And to your point, with no plan in place, you know, that's not going to have the ability or opportunity to happen for so many of these individuals. You know, I do a fair amount of work with family offices. Uh, I mean, that have got substantial. You know, even we're talking billions of dollars in, in many cases here. And in the second, third generation, which is kind of where the real pinch point is, mm -hmm. the, 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 the plan has been put in place from a structural perspective. But what we end up finding that we're actually interacting with and working with is yeah, getting people to talk to each other in a way and about, you know, in a way about the wealth that in, uh, it's, puts them in a position to understand that spending the wealth is not what the wealth is about, mm -hmm. that the wealth can be doing a structured in a way and it's already structured, but it can be put to use in a way that uplifts a whole lot of things rather than just the individual family member when they get their inheritance and they start spending. That's a difficult conversation for a third generation that's been used to this wealth for some time. How do you actually begin that conversation with, a youngster that's just coming in and you've got the plan in place. They understand at least intellectually, but this concept of wealth as opposed to money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good point. You know, and, and, and people talk about, you know, there's a quote that Steve Bashadi, the owner of the Ravens uses. And, you know, he talks about being able to live like a prince for a day or live like a king for a lifetime. And it really focuses on, yeah. You know, being able to develop that mentality and that mindset early on and being able to show them what this has the opportunity to look like for them down the road. You know, a lot of times they get caught up in what's going on in the locker room or what's going on in the parking lot of what other people have to do. And it really gets into the basics of being able to paint that vision and show them the power of having a plan, the power of saving, the power of putting money away and what that impact is going to be able to have and provide on individuals that they want to be able to provide for and themselves for right. down the road. Um, but it's tough when yeah. you are a young person. It's tough for anybody. But, you know, let's face it, you think of the backgrounds that a lot of these individuals come from and they've been challenged. And now all of a sudden your life has dramatically changed over the course of a matter of 
days for these individuals in terms of where they can go, where they can shop, what they can eat, what they can do. Um, and, and again, just thinking about looking at this from a much further perspective down the road as it relates to the impact that, you know, it can have. You know, I have conversations with these guys and gals all the time and with their parents and really challenge them and, and thinking about parents that have multiple kids. Well, you know, you've got three kids, two of them graduated from college. They've gone on into corporate America or to do something else. How many times did you stop working and expect them to now go purchase a house or do other things for you as it relates to, you know, th their life and your life moving forward? But so often is the case. And that when these individuals come out, everybody's lifestyle is all of a sudden now dramatically going to have an opportunity to change. And again, being able to challenge them on that short term thinking, but really being able to paint the picture as to what this has an opportunity to look like down the road as it relates to making some sacrifices now, but also having a solid game plan in place. You know, and the dollar amounts are crazy now. I mean, think about some of these NBA contracts. You know, you're making, you got a max deal. You're making $250, $300 million. You're not thinking about the fact that, you know, I'm not going to have the ability to do what I need to do down the road because it's just so much money there. But showing the level of impact that it can have. I mean, these guys and gals have so much power in terms of things that they want to do and things that they can change and things that they have the capability of being able to influence in the world. But again, it's getting into that mentality and mindset now in terms of the impact that that can have for folks down the road. And, and Drew, you know, coming from the same background, there's another mindset or mindset or mental perspective that works against us uh, with athletes. And it's something that nobody really talks about. It's that we're conditioned as athletes, please people, we're looking for applause. And so when we have that much money uh, and your high school buddy comes up to you and said, hey, I need $10,000 to save my mom's house, uh, th th there is this need to please. And there's this perception that I'm a bad guy or people won't like me unless I give what I have to them. And eventually it runs out coming from someone who lost over a hundred million dollars and understands that mindset of being a pleaser and wanting applause and living between that gap of who I am and what I want people to think I am is a, is a big challenge for someone like you who at EduCore is going to give those core values about a legacy and a greater good that we can provide with the financial blessings that our family may have never experienced before. But we'll have you back and talk more in depth about other sets of mindset, heart set, and handset that challenges uh, our athletes today. And it's great to know there's people like you with three decades of experience doing what they can to help facilitate a greater good, not only for the athlete and their families, but the communities uh, that can share in that wealth uh, for generations to come, as well as the impact of their brands uh, as well to create social change. But I want to get back into that. We have uh, Kate Scott Griffith waiting in the wings. Drew, thank you so much. Thank you guys us. for having me on. I appreciate it. You Have bet. Thank you. The other Pasadena, the other Pasadena, Ireland. Uh, welcome, my friend. We'll have to come and visit you back east. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. You got it. All right. Good Last stuff. but not least, Scott is Case Scott Griffith. And uh, Blaine, I saved the best for last for you as much as Drew was aligned uh, with my previous uh, life and current. Uh, 
perspective, we're going to talk about collaborative coordinated movement, which is uh, one of Blaine Bartlett's favorite things to talk about of how to be resilient and reliable. And Scott, um, you have a new book out, The Leader's Guide to Managing Risk, and this proven method for resilience and reliability. I'm going to start off and steal a question from Blaine. Uh, you know, the idea of this collaborative movement uh, is lost today. We are working within the context of separate, whether it be remote working, whether it be digital in fake to real, there's what separation uh, that's going on. And all three of us believe in abundance and the core spine to abundance is collaboration. Uh, how have we lost sight in this collaborative effort and how is it utilized to manage risk? Well, thank you, David, for having me. And uh, you, you've really hit on the essence of, uh, of what I talk about in the book. Um, Blaine, I'm sure you, you'll appreciate that uh, collaboration is often the key to success, whether you're in business or a sports environment uh, or, or any activity. Um, what we've seen over the years, and I think I might bring a, an external perspective to your, to your dialogue today, is that uh, we have become a society that's specialized. We no longer change the oil in our car. We go to some Jiffy Lube type environment. Uh, the same is true in businesses and the same is true in sports. We become specialized when everything's working well, that specialization serves us immensely. When things go wrong, that's where resilience has to come in and you, you have to have collaboration to understand how to manage risk. And that's where these silos that we see throughout businesses often break down because that separation that works when things go well doesn't work when things go wrong. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, and that distinction around you know, specialization, because uh, if I'm a personal performer out there doing what I'm doing, yeah, life is pretty easy. I mean, in, in one sense. Um, the idea of you know, and, and this is what you know in my in my experience, uh, Scott. Can I'm going to bounce this off you here a little bit here? The big stumbling block with creating a culture of collaboration, yeah, co-creating coordinated movement is kind of how I describe it uh, from a leadership perspective. The big stumbling block is people tend to be risk or not risk averse, conflict averse, mm. and. The idea of conflict, I've started unbundling this a little bit. I want to just check this out with you in terms of resilience. You know, if I walk across a, a slate of ice, yeah, it's not going to be a very pretty <laughs> observation. I'm going to be sprawling all over the place, kind of like Bambi twirling around when Bambi first ran into ice. Without friction, there's no movement. And the analog to friction in an organization is conflict. The, the, so the challenge is, how do I manage the appropriate amount of friction? Because friction is going to cause heat, but it also generates light yeah, to illuminate you know, what's going on here. So using that as a metaphor, yeah, kind of how do you position people embracing conflict as a necessary component to high performance? That's a great analogy, and and I'm a by training and background, I'm a physicist, and so that 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 come you know when you're describing friction and conflict, uh, they do go together. We like to say we don't want people or individuals and businesses to be risk averse, but to be risk intelligent. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and David, I just heard you say with the previous guest that at one point in your career, you lost over $100 million. The, the fact that you were able to be resilient after that loss uh, speaks volumes to how you see, understand, and manage risk. I blame to your point about uh, people see conflict as something that's adversarial. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have to look at conflict as what I call creative tension. Uh, when you have that creative tension and, you, and ask any uh, professional championship sports team, ask any uh, uh, musical band or uh, a theater troupe, that creative tension, the give and the take, where you're looking at, 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 at the world around us through multiple lenses, always produces better results when you can adapt to, the, to, to how that interaction takes place. If you seek to avoid it, we live in isolation. None of us are going to be as smart as the collective whole when we come together. And we all live in the age, we've seen it, where the internet has exploded with information that's now available to us. But the key to that explosion is how do we collaborate to make sense of it? Because there's just yeah. too much information out there. And in your new book, uh, it's a leader's guide. It's not just a guide. It's a guide. And inherent, I was glad to hear you're a physicist because I studied the most well-known physicist in the world, uh, the applied mathematics of Einstein and his own philosophies and perspective of authority. And he, you know, in studying Einstein as a leader, uh, an intelligent, hyper-intelligent, by the way, follower, um, inherent within authority of a leader is the ability to challenge authority because you have no authority until you challenge authority you're just a follower um and in this idea of managing risk as a leader um what does that relationship look like uh to challenge not just to get to be a leader but more importantly when people challenge you as a leader to authority as well and also to create a greater good a collective consciousness i myself as a young leader in my 20s had a real problem with people doing what i did to become a leader which was challenge my authority to improve the collective consciousness uh, in your book do you talk about that resilience reliability within the context of forgiveness acceptance collaboration as a leader to listen and learn from those who challenge us that's a really deep uh, and nuanced question, uh, David. I, I, I'll, I'll give you my best answer. I, I think the best leaders uh, lead by example because you can tell your employees or your teammates what to do, but they won't follow you until they have a self-interest in that. And if they trust you is when you make yourself vulnerable enough to show. I've seen situations where I've gone into businesses and I typically work in high consequence areas where things can go wrong catastrophically in the blink of an eye. Most managers try to manage employees' behaviors by rules, and none of us are rule followers. In fact, studies have shown that 81% of us at any given time are driving over the speed limit. It's not because we're bad people, it's because we're managing risk in the moment and we think we're okay. The best leaders understand that they have to see risk, they have to build a system and a structure and an environment that people trust. 
And then and only then can you manage people. But take take the sports analogy. You can take a, a, an outstanding athlete and put them in a, a poorly designed system and they will not win the championship. Uh, you can give a great actor a lousy script and the movie won't succeed. But if you can see ahead to the risk beyond and the reward, by the way, with risk comes opportunity. There are two, two sides of the same coin. So if you can see opportunity, be risk intelligent, build a system and the system has to be such that when people fail and we will, all of us will, the system has to be resilient enough to bounce back. The system has to do that before we can expect the people to be resilient. Mm-hmm. And, and so creating that culture, I, I see a lot of business books where they talk about great inspired leadership. But guess what? Every one of us is temporary. We're going to get promoted, retire or pass away. And the next leader is going to come in and say, well, I'm going to do it this way. The most successful franchises in sports history had a system that, that, that went beyond one season or one, one championship. So if we're in it for the long term, and I think most of us are at this point, uh, we have to do a variety of things. Uh, so, so we have to be vulnerable enough, David, to, to inspire people to want to emulate us. Otherwise, they're just not going to be rule followers. You know, the, the idea of system design, yeah, I mean, and I'm going to put this in the context of uh, ontological design, kind of a, a little little bit higher order. Yeah, designing a system that designs me in return, designing an environment that designs me in return. So there's a reciprocity that kind of comes into play here. And what I'd like to, you know, kind of explore a little bit with you in the time that we've got left here, Scott, is, you know, your, your sequence of reliability uh, there's there's predictability that comes out of reliability, obviously. So h- how does how does your sequence of reliability, which is you know, for those of the, you know, that are listening right now, it's the first independently audited high reliability and just culture model that works in any endeavor. Now I'm gonna I just cribbed that directly from the show notes here, but the idea of designing a system for reliability which addresses the question of risk, but it also addresses the question of collaboration. What, you know, as a sequence, what, what are you paying attention to with that? Oh, that's a, the, you guys are, uh, you, you studied up, you guys asked great questions. Uh, so so the, the sequence of reliability is, is a four-step process that, that we have yet to find any area in our lives where the sequence doesn't work, whether it's parenting children, running a business or managing something like a nuclear power plant. Whatever systems you design and however you manage your people, if you have missed the the seeing and understanding of the risk, you won't do well. So in Fukushima, Japan, when they did all of this design on, on the nuclear power reactor, not anticipating an earthquake below the ocean causing a tsunami, that was a predictable failure in hindsight. But whatever we do with our systems and our people, we, it starts with, do we, do we see and do we understand the risk? If we can see it and understand it, then we start to build reliable, effective and resilient systems. And then and only then can we manage people. And we manage people through two ways, performance shaping factors or what they call performance management, my knowledge, skills, abilities, proficiencies, system, personal, environmental influences. And then it comes down to my behavior, which is the choices and errors I make. Those are the first three steps followed by the last step, which is 
the organization? How does an organization sustain all of that? And, and so we have great leaders that focus on leading people and inspiring people, but they haven't built reliability into their systems. Those people turn over and change, including the leader, and we don't see sustainable results. Mm-hmm. We have engineers who build brilliant systems, but the risk mutates and changes. And so the systems haven't kept pace. So that four-step process, seeing and understanding risk, number one, building reliability and resilient systems, managing people through performance and then behavior, and then finally putting that together in a sustainable, we call it document monitoring and measuring. You have to document what you're doing and continuously monitor and measure and adapt it so that it can be sustained. Uh, It sounds simple, but it's rarely ever easy to to accomplish. And the devil is in the details. Yeah, no, Scott, it's so interesting because as you mentioned, you know, losing so much money, uh, I learned about timing and risk tolerance. And one of the things that I studied was airlines, uh, which is Mm -hmm. where you built uh, yeah. your career and reputation. And, and I told my wife, I said, most people don't realize that the safest uh, form of transportation, more than walking, more than crawling, <laughs> believe it or not, more people die crawling uh, and walking or swimming uh, is flying. And I wanted to study what the preparation was and the timing and risk tolerance and then the ex- execution and the reliability uh, the resilience uh, of transportation and, of course, the collaboration uh, in the skill sets, the knowledge and the desire that went into the collaborative efforts in order to perform millions of people a day uh, in a completely safe manner. Uh, and it was, in my opinion, managing risks. And I wanted to look at the next chapter in my life in my mid-30s is I'm going to be an airline and people are going to be amazed in the reliability and the resilience and the collaboration uh, and the amount of abundance that create and safety uh, in that. And so uh, just want to congratulate you, everyone. If you want to understand how to invest, how to build a business, how to get along with your family, uh, those steps that are in the leader's guide to managing risks, create a proven method to build reliability Every aspect of your life will benefit from it. Take it from someone like me, but more importantly, take it from someone like Scott, who has founded this as a world-class uh, expert in this field. And even more to my heart singing is physics. I know there's some incorporation of how math works behind this as well in applied mathematics. Blaine Bartlett and Scott Griffith, two of my favorite mentors. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. We have other shows to put you on. Sure. The world needs more of your book and more of you. Thanks yeah. for taking the time this morning. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a, been a distinct pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank Take you care. so much. We'll have you on the show, Scott. Yeah, yeah he's hey. awesome. All right, my brother. Love it. Touchdown. We're gonna be we're gonna be filming the TV show side of it. Maybe next uh, t- filming we'll have uh, Scott out to Las Vegas, and yeah. uh, I think he's an extraordinary guest as well. But we're gonna be filming the second half of season five. We like to finish up every show. Um, not only do we give an unstoppable award winner uh, on the TV show for our great foundation, but we give a takeaway of the day. I think, you know, it's so hard to make great lessons. So it's great to understand your perspective with all the great guests we had and all the great nuggets that were shared. What's your takeaway for the day, Blaine? Um, the need to attend to culture. 
I'm going to just drop right into that one. Uh, I mean, all three of our guests in some way, shape or form talked about that. Um, Yeah, culture. Yeah, it's the stew we live in and it will inform everything that we do. It will constrain or it will empower. And a lot of people don't pay attention. This is, you know, the phrase I used with Scott was ontological design. You know, just, you know, deliberately and intentionally designing an environment that designs me in return. How can I be the best that I can be? It's a lot of us predicated on the environment I put myself in. And if that environment isn't designed in a way that actually gives me feedback about where I can grow and how I can grow, I'm going to be dead in the water, whether it's financial literacy whether it's um, you know, uh, you know, SaaS you know, so- software, I mean, something as just granular as that, or if it's uh, managing risk you know, in whatever endeavor. The culture I find myself developing and living in makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, part of the reason I have you on the show, besides being my mentor for so many years and helping me uh, live a life of, of purpose, passion, and profitability is uh, there's no other show on earth that talks about uh, ontological design or Marcus Aurelius anymore. So uh, you got to have Blaine here to give us true insight on what's going to make a difference. Uh, I'm more mainstream with Einstein and Scott Griffith, but uh, my takeaway for the day is uh, the importance of timing and risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have three different generations of people, of leaders, note, like really big leaders uh, that, that were here, Justin, um, and etc. The importance of predetermining timing and risk tolerance and Drew uh, with, with athletes at the start. If you know your timing and risk tolerance, you'll never be unhappy with the outcome. Yeah, uh, and it's a it's a big takeaway. If you if you know lottery tickets two dollars and on Saturday at eight p.m. you have a one in a billion chance to win a half a billion dollars and you don't win. Uh, that half a billion dollars, you're happy. You've already done a timing and risk tolerance analysis of your $2. And so many people miss the most important stage is setting their own expectations as a leader, uh, as someone who's pursuing their potential. Uh, And I think that helped me uh, because I did have a timing and risk tolerance. I knew that I was risking everything uh, in my 20s and my 30s out of a confidence that the relationship capital and situational knowledge in losing that money would far exceed the amount of money that I spent or learned or paid for the dummy tax. Not everybody has that same timing and risk tolerance. I don't have it anymore. I would say when you live in abundance in an infinite world, all your thoughts are limiting. What we learn to do later on in life is uh, pick the limiting thoughts that serve us best. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> like exactly. motorcycles. I'll give you an example. When I was in my 20s, there's a limiting thought that motorcycles were dangerous. That didn't serve me in my 20s. But at 55, it certainly serves me today. And uh, it serves me to tell my children the same thing. Uh, <laughs> so we pick the limiting thoughts that serve us best, according and aligned with the timing and risk tolerance. Blaine, there is no risk in doing a show with you. There's only an elevation of frequency, a neighborhood uh, that all physicists, applied mathematics, and human beings enjoy here on office hour you make the show it's the soul of business with blaine bartlett if you want the greatest mentor in the world i have him his name is blaine bartlett check him out at blainebartlett.com <laughs> thank you my friend i will see you in vegas next week uh, next week we'll be together our next yeah. show
Yeah, we're going to have a great time. Looking forward to it. Thank you. The incredible Blaine Bartlett, everyone. We appreciate you joining us every day in all our shows. We are blessed to have people uh, like our guests today, Justin Drew and Scott, who are pouring into our community, a community of people that want to help each other and know people that will help each other. Email me. Uh, we have our training tomorrow, over 24 years, free Friday training. We're still doing it. We got a live meetup at In-N-Out Burger, uh, not at the win, believe it or not. I'm trying something new for Steph. Uh, so we'll be at the, in Las Vegas with a meetup. Come see us in person or stop by the studio at the Wynn and see us. David at dmeltzer.com. If you want to be alerted where we are, we have a text alerting system, 949-298-2905. let you know where we are, what we're doing, how to sign up for a free training or a free book or whatever else you need. We're building a community of people that want to help each other and know people that can help each other. But most importantly, as you could see today, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care.